Hi, welcome to the inaugural Contra Office podcast, the show where through discourse and discussion, we attempt to reach consensus on the future of blockchain and distributed systems. I'm Sunny Agarwal. And I'm Nate Rush. Uh, on this very special first episode, we are honored to welcome Arthur Brightman, co-creator of Tezos, and Vlad Zamfir, a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation of the podcast. The topic of this podcast is going to be blockchain protocol governance. Uh, before getting started, uh, we just want to uh, say we hope all of our readers got a chance to take a look at the reading list that is available on our website. And throughout the podcast, we'll be referencing a lot of the readings that were in that list. Awesome. Um, Arthur, Vlad, thanks again so much for coming on today. Uh, we really appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, let's start with some introductions. Who are you and what are you working on currently? Arthur, go for it. Okay, so my name is uh, Arthur Braven, and I work on a protocol called uh, Tezos. Um, and uh, Tezos is a uh, self-amending blockchain. I would say that's the main uh, uh, particularity of it. And what it means exactly is uh, every blockchain um, that's out there has had some uh, some forks and it has some change in its algorithm. And generally, it follows a certain ad hoc process in order to do that, where the community kind of get together and say like, "Hey, we really want this new version," and they all kind of move on to this new version. And my reflection is that the, that, you know, the, the game theory around this, the game theory around like which branch you move to has a lot more to do with um, a clout that has to do with merit. And so the idea of Tezos is to say, let's have a formal governance process so that the blockchain can evolve. Hmm. Cool. I'm glad. Yeah. Hi, I'm glad I usually work uh, on consensus protocols, but I guess today I'll be wearing my blockchain governance researcher hat. Um, so, you know, I mean, I kind of agree that part of the point of, Te like, the point of Tezos is to, like, you know, put formal, like, have a form, very formal kind of governance structure. But I definitely think that that kind of thing is also, it's very possible to have formal governance outside of the blockchain protocol. Um, but I don't know if, what the organization is, and I don't know if we're meant to just jump right into things. Cool. Yeah, why don't we start, why don't we start, um, maybe if you guys could kind of give us a, succinct summary of, you know, kind of what you think blockchain governance is. I know that's a, you know, fairly big topic, um, but, you know, maybe a, a, a high level overview, a bird's eye overview of kind of uh, the key points of like specifically blockchain protocol governance, as you guys see it. Okay, I guess I'll jump in. So to me, blockchain governance has basically, a, it has to do with the governance of the resources that blockchain kind of depends on. And there's, a few of them that I like to focus on, I like to focus on um, the software repositories uh, that contain like the implementations of the blockchain. Um, there might there might be more than one, and then they should be consensus compatible, right? Uh, and then there there are nodes who run implementations of the blockchain. Uh, so there's like nodes, software repos, uh, and they're they're kind of governed separately, at least in like. Bitcoin and Ethereum, and there's also the trademark, which is a kind of more interesting resource. And there's and there's other kind of more peripheral blockchain governance resources like, um, you know, mailing lists and Reddit and all that kind of stuff. So uh, when you talk about resources, um, so I know like Arthur in his talk on governance that was on our reading list, he, he talks about this concept of like shared resources versus like uh, property right resources. Mm -hmm. And so you would call the code base of the blockchain a type of shared resource as well as like the trademark is a shared resource. Um, I, I, would, I would definitely say that it's like, it's a resource that has a lot of stakeholders. Like a lot of people are impacted by changes to that resource. 
and so whether or not it's technically owned by like GitHub or the or, or an organization um, in like a legal title sense, um, the whole community is impacted by changes to those repositories. At least, um, you know, if there's a few or if there are important repositories. I see. All right, cool. Uh, and Arthur, could you give us a bit of a summary of like, you know, what, what do you think of, like how do you define the topic of go protocol governance? Oh, I, I tend to agree. I think that uh, governance happens whenever you have a shared goal or a shared resource. You have many people who want to either manage resource together or do something together. Um, and so you end up with either tragedy of the commons where, you know, uh, it's no one's incentive to uh, maintain the common or um, the flip side of it, uh, uh, big uh, free riding where there's already something and you, you benefit for it without actually paying for it. So it's kind of... Um, it's, it's, it happens with uh, with something like the code base, for example. So you know, you know how, how should your code evolve? Because you want everyone to be using the same resource. Uh, however, um, no one wants to really pay for it. So the, the, the way you, you deal with this in some uh, in some blockchains, like Bitcoin, for example, Bitcoin has a transaction tax and a capital tax in order to pay for all the nodes and all the miners who are going to maintain this blockchain. But that and, and that pays for one aspect. Uh, of it, which is you know who's going to uh, participate in the consensus algorithm, who's going to who's going to allocate bandwidth, and so on and so forth. But there are other aspects uh, like um, who maintains the code base, who decides on the changes, or simple thing. You know, uh, if you decide, for example, that uh, reaching out, uh, explaining to people uh, what your blockchain is, what it does, uh, teaching people how to use it, and so on and so forth. All of these are shared resources that have a lot of stakeholders, as Vlad uh, mentioned, but which are not directly addressed by. Uh, by existing uh, governance algorithms. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so uh, kind of maybe I'm uh, misinterpreting here, but it seems like one of the distinctions that you guys are making is that Arthur, you kind of also include like the consensus algorithm, the, you know, the fees played to miners as part of governance. And Vlad, you mm -hmm. didn't mention that. It's more so about the nodes and the software that they're running. Um, um, so like, I wonder, do, do you, do you think that, you know, the consensus algorithm that the protocol runs is related to governance and, and kind of as a follow-up to that question is proof of stake, um, something that, you know, both of you guys are pro, um, in different variations is proof of stake, a governance process. Okay. Well, you can, uh, to me, like you could say that a blockchain protocol governs the order of blocks, but when I was talking about like software repositories, like that would, for example, govern things like the issue and schedule that's like a some that's like specified kind of you know either in uh you know it's ultimately specified in the implementations of the nodes running on the network so somehow software repositories captures all of the like the question of what protocol is running what the economics are yeah so i i i don't think i i think ideally your consensus algorithm is not governance you know i ideally your consensus algorithm should be as uh, as predictable and as deterministic as uh, as possible and it should not like so i i think in governance question there's the idea that the the, the problems we're trying to tackle with governance are fuzzier and the, the problem that the consensus algorithm is trying to solve is more well defined it's like you know we want to have consensus we don't want force we want to have finality we want to have all these properties which are very well defined from a computer science standpoint they're not really human problems so in general when you speak about governance in blockchain it's all the uh, further things that are happening around the ecosystem so would it be fair to draw then the distinction uh between consensus and governance at the governance is things that need some level of human input while protocol is things that run uh, 
pure, can be encoded purely in code? I mean, I, I think the, the thing is that most of the time when we look at governance, it's not the case that we just have an objective computer science or solution, right? It's just super rare that you can just verify with like tech or, or like just pure logic, whether something's a correct governance decision. And so most governance decisions don't boil down to, hey, let's run some code. They boil down to lengthy conversations and multi-stakeholder kind of negotiation. Cool. Um, so yeah. that seems like a nice distinction uh, or a nice way of, of talking about it. Uh, I guess a question then is, you know, what is the realm of blockchain protocol governance? Um, like, what are the stakes here? What are we talking about when we're talking about blockchain protocol governance? Um, um, and what do you expect... Um, you know, kind of an ideal blockchain protocol governance system to kind of do? Well, there's several levels. I mean, uh, on the simplest levels, a decision like uh, how much should block rewards be? Uh, should we use a different consensus algorithm? Uh, how should the algorithm evolve? Or if you have a smart contract platform, you know, what, uh, what, uh, how should the gas costs be? Should you, know, should you try having a different VMs? All, all of these decisions are going to impact a lot of people and they present trade-offs. And you need to have some sort of decision, some decision-making procedure in uh, uh, that lets you uh, that, that lets you steer um, the users of the platform in one direction and say, okay, there are trade-offs, but overall we're all better using the same system, and overall we think that you know this better system is uh, this version. So that's one um, that's one aspect. And um, at a um, at a higher level, I think it's uh, it's about incentives. So we've been living in a world where it's, uh, it's much more attractive for people to try and start their own blockchain project that rather than contributes to an existing one. Uh, and part of that is that it's really hard to capture the benefit of innovation if you just apply innovation to an existing system. Uh, and so uh, you see this, you know, people want to just start a new token rather than say like, hey, I'm going to bring all this innovation to this existing blockchain. Uh, and governance is a way also of, uh, of addressing that by saying like, hey, if you bring innovation to this blockchain, um, there's a procedure where you can be rewarded for doing this. So like different, different blockchain governance processes like offer more or less, you know, hope to contributors to actually get changes through. I think a lot of the reason people start new coins actually is because of the, I think, incredibly harmful norm of fixed supply cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. That means that the people who get in first are way over rewarded. Uh, and so everyone basically just goes and starts a fixed supply cryptocurrency so that they can get it first. Cause that's where this, this, this incentive is skewed. Even though your cryptocurrency is somehow, uh, because of the network effects, less likely to succeed if it's new. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this kind of like brings to like, I guess one of the big questions of like, you know, classes of users. Like traditionally when people talk about uh, like governance and uh, processes, they usually, the main classes to me, what I've, tend to see is like you have the operators of the network, which is what I call my work for like miners or the stakers or whatnot, uh, the users and then the miners, those tend to be like the three main Sorry, networks. you said the miners twice. Oh, sorry, uh, the developers, developers, yes. Um, and so it seems to me that one of the problems with uh, the developers is that like, you know, there's no, um, it, the miners actually earn more tokens while the developers don't naturally earn tokens, and all they can do is increase the value of their existing tokens. Well, I mean, I, I, meaning you didn't see that in like Bitcoin, you know, but like, you know, Ethereum, there was some pre-mine for the foundation in mm -hmm. Zcash, there's a issuance for the developers. Uh, I, there was, remember like, 
but then there's not. The, uh, I think the first coin that did a dev coin mm-hmm. back in like 2012 or something, 2013. Well, what about um, like this uh, fact that you like create this incumbent dev team who's the only one who's motivated? Yeah, so there's definitely governance issues around um, the software repositories and the development processes, and especially as it relates to the protocol specification and stuff like uh, and like governing the protocol, especially. So here's like. Um, you know, the kinds of things we're talking about, right? Like imagine if the uh, developers make a change to the protocol just to enrich themselves or make a change to the protocol uh, as a result of a bribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like if there's not, if there's not good processes, somehow um, it's possible, or if there's not good norms and processes, then, then you can have situations where uh, there's definite conflicts of interest that end up leading to stakeholders being yeah, and 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 I think it's important to uh, to understand you know what is the dynamics that happens uh, when you have a uh, when you have a change of protocol. And so if if you implement your change of protocol as a hard fork, uh, you create potentially two version of uh, of one coin. And when you have that, uh, most of the economic value is going to be captured by one token and not by the other. And it's 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 determined uh, by a shelling point. It's like the one that seems legitimate, the one that seems to be like the right one, is going to capture most of the economic value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if you see most of the, you know uh, around most forks, if you look at the ATC TH fork, uh, all the ATC rhetoric was around like no no, there's the original one. Look because you know we didn't change the, the rules. Uh, and uh, the same thing with uh, with uh, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash thing, Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. So it's, it's really, really about the legitimacy. And the problem with legitimacy is that it can be, like you could have the legitimacy and still be a bad fork. Like it's completely possible that, you know, like like Vlad says, you take a bribe, you do something bad in the code, but hey, it's actually, despite that, you know, unless it's extremely egregious or visible, despite that, it's the version that people think is legitimate. And so that's why I think that as, as a uh, as a governance procedure, if you just say like, "Hey, we're going to follow the hard forks," you um, you give too much clout to poss- to possibly development teams or other external factors. Interesting, yeah. So so to me, actually, like uh, with hard forks, we have a, a bigger hope of removing any kind of defaults. Where basically, with things, with, with uh, because basically, like you can have uh, user flags, where they have to like have like the flags set one way or the other. Um, as opposed to having, like in kind of Tezos, uh, a, a kind of in-protocol signal that sets the default. Yeah. Um, the defaults really can completely dominate, if, 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 especially if there's been a precedent a few times of just following the defaults. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I think what we do in Tezos is that we flip the thing on its head, which is that if you don't want to upgrade, you're the one who has to change the code. So, you know, the default is to follow the upgrade, uh, but if you don't like it, you're the one who's uh, you're the one who's hard forking. Uh, I think the benefit. So, and, and, and like Vlad said or hinted at earlier, uh, you could have you could, you could move the shelling point off chain by having this off chain governance procedure and say, hey, we clearly all agree to do this hard fork and send this to this hard fork without having it automatically applied uh, by the algorithm. However, if you do that, I I, I think you you can you, it works at the beginning. But over time, once your once your protocol becomes adopted in more and more places, the do nothing default, I think, becomes a stronger shelling point than the follow the governance procedure uh, default. And it might even be in the form of saying, "Hey, we have this software deployed in all these machines, 
and you know they have this fancy hard fork which breaks backwards compatibility. Uh, therefore, we you know we're not going to bother. We're just going to like follow the old one, and then all of a sudden you have all the ATMs, all um, all the uh, servers, all of this stuff which is using the old code, and they're not going to bother uh, with your new version. And so that, that creates a very very powerful uh, default unless you have auto upgrade functionality. Yeah. So I think I think well, if nodes that really need it, they could they they, they they like say because they don't have a node operator, but they're operating in the wild, they could have an auto upgrade functionality. However, that like should be seen as a software vulnerability because if there's a compromise in the GitHub repo, someone releases something, it'll kind of automatically upgrade. The main yeah. the main problem I think with the on chain shelling game is that. I think that your ability to represent the various stakeholders is much worse than our ability to represent stakeholders off-chain. Um, because off-chain, we have access to uh, people who cannot provide a civil-resistant mechanism, a civil-resistant proof on-chain. Well, okay, so then related to that, right? Like, so one of the nice things actually about using this either uh, coin holder-based voting or miner-based voting is it allows a way to do anonymous civil resistance. While if you start depending on these like off-chain governance mechanisms, the only way to do civil resistance, like, you know, node, sig node signaling is in civil resistance. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there are cases where yeah, people claim that like people just running nodes yeah, on AWS. Yeah, sure. But if, but if Poloniex says what their policy is or if Bitfinex says what their policy is, what node they're going to choose, that could be very, but, but, you know. but then the thing is, though, that once you uh, remove this ability to be anonymous in your I mean, you uh, shelling game, I mean, so that doesn't get removed. All minor signaling and coin signaling still exists. Just because we don't automatically have to follow it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen as a signaling method. People still will be able to say what their opinion is as a miner or a coin holder using so, a civil resistance method. So, you, so your suggestion, so what you're saying is that sort of, you know, you have the you know, you have these like governance systems on chain, uh, like voting and like carbon voting or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, but then you also have these like options. They're more like a communication system. It's more like a signaling system, Yes. which maybe can help people coordinate around focal points um, or around the decision that they like, as opposed to something that automatically helps or automatically determines what software a node mm -hmm. will upgrade. So it's like, so basically the question is like, you know, d what is the signal hooked up to? Well, so what is someone's upgrade? Uh, so let's say they have like in the node, they have some like, they can set something that they use to upgrade their, to like pull a new uh, software. And like you're saying, what, what do they look at to do that? Um, yeah. And so they're going to use different sources of information and like and it's a big, there's kind of a difference between the node operator doing it mm -hmm. and the smart contract and the consensus protocol doing it. So everything has to be manual, essentially. Yeah, it, will, it has to be kind of done by the operator's own policies. Um, so what, do you, what, what about the fact that, like, I don't know, I feel like you know, most users just literally just don't care. Well, no, they do care. They want to be with their peers. Um, they don't care about other than that. They just want, hope to be with with their peers, that's all they really So then isn't the easiest way to make sure that they're all with their peers is make sure everyone sort of like upgrades atomically and then the people who don't want to do that. Yeah, right? sure, so that'd be great, but how do you do that in a way that like actually represents the interests of, uh, for example, node operators? Okay, so to, uh, real quick question. Um, a lot of, you're talking about like the concerns and, and motivations of stakeholders. Um, I just wonder, can you define like who the stakeholders are in the system? Who, I mean, who are the people we really care about here? 
Yeah, sure. So um, basically, the stakeholder is kind of defined as like anyone who has who is affected by the outcome. Um, so it's, it includes it includes people who like run their businesses on the network, people who are just users, people who are affected just through uh, like even indirect effects, like say if the blockchain uh, creates public goods or public harms. They're also kind of considered stakeholders. Um, so anyone who's affected by uh, the resource is, is considered a stakeholder. You know, the developers of applications, the developers of the protocol, the users, the coin holders, the, all the ERC20 holders, you know, whatever. Arthur, how do you define uh, stakeholders? Uh, no, I, I think I think this definition is uh, is fine, but I, I I think a lot of the interest of most of the stakeholders is being uh, is captured uh, uh, by the token holders. Uh, essentially, if you're a token holder and you care about your interest as a token holder, your interests uh, well understood is that the system is useful and that there's many people on it and that the system is reliable and that people can count on it. And so. Uh, if you understand your interests correctly, you're going to have the interests of most of the stakeholders that uh, that Vlad mentions at heart. I, I, I don't think there's a fundamental conflict. It, it's not it's not a hundred percent aligned, but it is very very closely aligned. That seems to make sense very well for like what I'd call like a store value uh, blockchain, where like like Bitcoin, where I feel like the peep, the holders are like almost by definition the uh, stakeholders. But what about when we start to move to stuff like Ethereum, where let's say like it, as of now, it's not the case yet, but let's say in a few years where like the primary usage and the users of Ethereum, they just hold a little bit of Ether just to pay their fees, but they're just primarily using ERC-20 tokens. And now like, mm. like the Ether whales are like very, dis and they have like a incentive, their incentive mm. is to like raise transact, get as much transaction fees as like usage of transaction fees as possible and stuff. And that seems like a very clear case of like, the uh, native token uh, holders uh, misalignment with the um, other users of the yeah. platform. Yeah. yeah, but the thing is, if you uh, if they start doing that, then people are going to move to platform with lower fees. Uh, I think you know even a little bit of competition in the space is enough to uh, to put in check uh, this type of uh, of, uh, of uh, monopoly pricing. So how do you, so, so, I mean, my hypothesis is that like, oh, look, the, uh, even a bit of uh, uncompetitiveness means that this kind of pricing will happen to some extent. Uh, like, okay, how, how, how would you say that, like, you know, we could measure the uh, kind of effect of the competitiveness, so somehow the effect of the competitive competition between blockchains on the incentives of stakeholders? I mean, it, it, it's not just competition with other blockchains. It's just that you know you could you could you can piggyback off of a block. You know, if, if the fees of a, on a blockchain are too high, you can piggyback. You can basically create side channels, uh, state channels. There's there's many ways where you can piggyback off off this blockchain and stop paying like really high fees if it's being uh, very inconvenient. So I I I you know I, I don't think there's a whole lot of pricing power uh, here. Okay, uh, so maybe not even then just in terms of pricing power. I mean, I guess the more general question is like, you know, um, in terms of bad governance decisions, um, you know, 
do we think blockchains really are competitive enough that people can, you know, just make the move and switch if things get, things get, get bad? Or is that an unrealistic assumption, I guess? Because, you know, if we decide it is an unrealistic assumption for people to switch, then like, you know, we, we've got to be more careful because we can get locked into like pretty bad situations pretty quickly. It would be, so somehow it's harder to fork away from the default mm -hmm. than to fork to something, than to fork to something new. So, anyways, the faults are sticky. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So, I mean, like in Nate and I, like in our original uh, conspiratorist like blog, our first article was about Tezos, and we kind of like argued about governance a bit. And the analogy that I actually made was that governance, like we should compare it to like real world governments, where we generally allow governments, you know, proceed without uh, uh, needing everyone's involvement every single time. And then once a government fails or it, like, it does something atrocious, then you have a revolution or a secession. And that, and, but the thing is, the issue is in the real world, revolution and secession usually comes with war and it's bloody and messy, while the ability for hard forking allows a much easier secession and revolution than in the real world. And so... The question is like, do we think then, like, like Nate set basically said, is like, how do we like try to estimate the cost of creating hard forks? Well, Vitalik had a nice uh, blog post about it a while ago, uh, where there's basically there's a cost and a benefit, right? Because there's more like diverse consumer needs being fell uh, being filled, but a cost to to the network effect loss, and depending on the different kind of utilities there, it might be a benefit or, or or a loss. I don't remember the details, but. Interesting. Um, so, uh, one thing that it seems, it seems like kind of the main distinction that you guys disagree on is, uh, is this kind of idea of what the default should be and kind of, it seems to me like the argument, Arthur, that you're making for why the default should be, you know, go with the network is kind of like mm -hmm. twofold. It's first like, you know, you just want to be with your peers. So it, it's kind of, you know, it, the point is that it's kind of easiest this way, right? There's kind of efficiency gains to be had in terms of the process of upgrading. If we kind of just say, you know, Oh, just go with your peers by default. Um, mm -hmm. Vlad, do you think that there's something to be said in terms of efficiency gains? Like what makes you so sure that the efficiency gains that we, you know, get from this really formal on chain automatic governance process aren't greater than, you know, the, yeah, the, well, I, I don't think the, the bottle, the bottleneck in governance and practice isn't really the efficiency of upgrades as much as the deliberation around what changes are appropriate. So I don't really think it's actually the bottleneck. And my fear is that getting rid of the default or adding the, making the default to follow will remove an important check and balance that the blockchain has today, which is namely the manual kind of processes of the node operators. Um, Okay, another question about the uh, node operators, right? Um, so one thing that I, kind of going back to a question I asked uh, quite earlier on about like the anonymity pro uh, side of things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, is, so this is great, yeah. Right, and so I, like, so for example, there have been, what, what, what do you so think about the claim that there was a lot of Segwit2x supporters mm -hmm. who were too scared to speak out, which might account for that like sudden Bitcoin cash spike as soon as Segwit2x failed? Like, I know mm -hmm. I have personally tweeted a pro2x tweet, and then I got kind of scared and yeah. I deleted my tweet. Yeah, so, this, so, so right. So I mean, so that's actually the beautiful thing about node governance is that it's completely anonymous and there's no voting, no signaling, no counting really at all. Mm -hmm. um, Posting on Twitter actually isn't you acting as a node operator; it's you acting as a. <coughs> I mean, I, okay. I also uh, run a Bitcoin Classic. Node, yeah, sure. So, but running the node is something that you don't need to tell anyone about, and you can do, uh, and do doesn't involve a civil measure at all. 
right? And so you can't really tell by looking at what nodes are seen on the network that reliably. But then it's not what's that's not simple. Well, exactly. But it's but the but the point is that it's not about getting a signal of what people are doing. It's about people independently making a decision about what to install, right? Uh, and so it, actually the fact, and somehow it's quite elegant that we get to have a governance process where we don't actually need to tally the votes at all, but we get to have the decision be enforced in a distributed way by all sorts of different governance processes about governing different nodes. Do you think there is an option to add some sort of like, you know, heuristics to nodes, like, you know, economic uh, way? Uh, sure, but if you did it in the protocol as opposed to it being done by the process of the node operator, right. then I would be much more concerned. Because it would be kind of less decentralized in a way, and because there's, 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 because these because everyone who is running a node has a shelling point now, mm -hmm. which is just to follow the protocol, and so they don't need to actually do as much active coordination. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is like I, I think that by the time you're an operator and you decide what node you're going to install and, and what you're going to run, I think the decision is already over. Like the decision is already made for you. The decision even you know happens before the hard fork. Like. Uh, I mean, you I don't know, think that's tell. always clear, right? That's not, that's not always clear. I mean, for example, the Dow hard fork, it wasn't that clear. Which one was going to win? Yeah. Oh, were they going to be clustered? I, I, I don't know. It, for, for me, it was obvious that the one with the original dev team and all of this stuff was going to be the, uh, the, the winning one just because the shelling point was so strong. But uh, yeah, I feel like the one I mean, that the Ethereum uh, Foundation supported. Yeah, but somehow the Ethereum Foundation didn't really take sides. It was, and even the devs at the foundation were kind of split on it. Um, but I, I, I kind of agree with you that the shelling point was stronger on the for support dot fork, mm -hmm. but I was definitely insecure about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's like, yeah, we don't, we don't have a whole lot of data points uh, in this space for, for this kind of things happening. But I, I think that before most forks, you know, even before the, the, the Bitcoin Cash or, or CB2X, it was, it was pretty clear uh, which, uh, which branch was going to have the economic uh, cluster. Mm -hmm. That's sure. that's something you could predict, based you know just based on inertia, you know just based on like people just mm -hmm. think. And, and so it's, it's so, but it is actually super useful. For example, when like Bitfinex or Poloniex says what their policy is for what they're going to list under what name. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. They have a they have a whole lot of power. Although mm -hmm. they use this power, but then they can. I, I, I forgot which was, but I think Coinbase you know kind of uses power by saying like we're going to support this. But it's like, had they committed to 2x or something like that? And then they said, like, well, actually, we don't know. Uh, yeah. So yeah. there's a bit of, I, I compare hard force to a game of chicken. You know, essentially, each side wants to say, no, 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 we're going to go with that side and we'll just, like, take all our tokens from the other fork and we'll sell them and we'll just keep this one and we're just, like, completely committed to this one. Mm -hmm. But if, if you do that and you're not sure that you're actually going to capture most of the economic cluster, you're, uh, you know, you're going to crash your car. So there's a lot of there's a lot of bluffing that's involved in uh, in doing. Um, so like in a talk probably six months ago or something, Arthur, you said something along the lines of, "I'd like to think of a hard fork like a revolution." Um, and, and Vlad, in a kind of a similar talk, at least on governance, kind of makes a very clear distinction between a revolution and like secession, which is what he thinks of a hard fork. Um, and, and I'd I'd love to like explore like Arthur, maybe why do you think of it like a revolution, and Vlad, why do you draw that distinction? So. Uh, I'll start quickly. I think of it as a revolution mostly because a hard fork doesn't really have a split between two parts of the communities. I think one branch always wins. I, I don't think the problem with a hard fork is that it splits your network effect. I think the problem with a hard fork is that the branch that you take is not necessarily the branch that 
is the best spread to take. That, that, that's the main concern. Like historically, hard forks typically. Uh, there's not a whole lot of examples, but if I think of like ETC and uh, uh, and Bitcoin Cash, they're like ten percent. Um, and historically, most of the economic value is going to be uh, captured by one. So you can think of it as a revolution, but and I know it's not a hard. I, I know it's not really a hard fork, but uh, you can think of it as a revolution. But it's mostly um, you can think of it as a decision, but mostly it's just you know one big decision for the main economic cluster, and you end up with a small economic cluster. But so far, we haven't seen a hard fork or, or a split of communities where the two become really, really big. Maybe we'll see it with Bitcoin Cash because they're pushing a lot. Uh, they're certainly pushing a lot behind it, so that that, that, that remains to be written. Uh, but haven't seen it so far. Maybe we just haven't also, we, I feel like we also just haven't seen that many contentious hard forks. Like, I mean, really Bitcoin Cash and Ethereum Classic, uh, I guess are kind of like the really yeah. only but, major ones. But, you know, there's <laughs> lots of hard forks that, you know, don't represent any changes in the governance process at all, right? I mean, so there's lot, like most successful hard forks, um, you know, don't, aren't disruptive to the, to the governance of the repository, aren't disruptive to the governance <coughs> um, you know, only really um, contentious hard forks are disruptive to governance processes. Uh, or maybe, they might not yeah. even be also, right? Mm -hmm. And the session really has to do with setting up an alternative governance process and saying, look, I don't want to, or, you know, and trying to kind of build an alternative competing you know, hopefully, so like an alternative process for governing the repo, which you hope will be more legitimate one day, which is kind of like Bitcoin Cash and, and Ethereum Classic's dream, right? They kind of hope that their governance processes will be more legitimate than, and they believe they are more legitimate, yeah. right, than Bitcoin and Ethereum's. Um, so, but, I mean, would you, you know, say that Bitcoin Cash is based around this like governance process idea? Yes, they, 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 it was, there's, the stakeholders of Bitcoin Cash have been disenfranchised by Bitcoin Core's governance process and have set up a new one, which they, they feel will represent their interests. I see. Um, and so, but do you agree with uh, Arthur's claim that like, you know, given this uh, split, that like, there will always be one winner out of the two? Or well, I mean, I think it's very unlikely that there's going to be a tie. Sure, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, do you think it's likely to get a, like a 30-70 uh, split? No, I think, the, I think we're talking power laws, and so it's more likely to be like, you know, 99, 99 1, 95, 5. What is uh, Ethereum Classic right now? Like, I don't know. Like, probably like worse than 90-10 like for Ethereum Classic. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think we, we could say that the uh, Dow hard fork ended up being uh, relatively successful. <laughs> really successful. Uh, although I think the main problem with the Dow hard fork was the lack of replay protection. Hmm. Uh, okay, so wasn't the onus on the Ethereum foundations, like the, the, the Ethereum chain to add replay protection? Well, I mean, I, I mean well, I mean, it's not, it's not that simple. I mean, there's like limited dev resources and limited time and we, it was definitely something that like I pushed for and other people pushed for, but the developers didn't think that uh, it was worth the additional, because it it's a significant code change, right? It changed the number of lines for the hard fork, uh, increased, it, increased it a lot. Okay, so. Uh, and the, so the probability that it would have broken something was, rel rel I mean, the risk of the hard fork going, having a technical failure would have been quite higher. I see, okay, so if we could go back, if you would have preferred to like, you know, if the Ethereum Foundation could have pushed, like maybe it would have to have been delayed a little bit, but like really get that. Yeah, uh, and the, and the issue was that like, oh, if we had, to, if there was like one more delay that was possible, 
but it would have made the hard fork more complex also because of the DAO fund movement. Mm -hmm. um, Arthur, sorry, I don't know if, sorry to like put you on the spot on this, but like, I don't know, what, what are your opinions on the DAO hard fork? Oh, um, yeah, I, I, I wish it had the replay uh, protection, uh, but there, there was a smart contract where you could like split your fund, and that was very, uh, that was very clever. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, overall, I, I, I don't have a strong. Uh, let's see, I, 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 I don't have a strong opinion on whether or not it was the right thing to like uh, take the funds back from the DAO. I can see like reasons to do it and reasons not to do it. So uh, here's what I, first is like. I don't believe uh, in the ideas that like, nope, this is exactly what the contract says. Therefore, you know, the funds are uh, on them. Like uh, it's, you know, it, it's not a theft and uh, free and clear. No, uh, I, I think it is fundamentally theft that, uh, or attempted theft that, uh, that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, when, when people enter a contract, uh, there's some there's certain expectations. And the expectation here is like, you know, it's, you know, you know, it's like, you know what I mean? Okay, and that was not what the contract was meant to do. That's not what people understood. And so, if if you just think about it for a second, it's it's it's, it's pretty clear that it's not okay to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, would you be comfortable telling your mom that hey, I took all this money from these people? And like, yes, they intended to because they put this recursion <laughs> bug, and that was you know their entire purpose in doing this. But then we get the money. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the, the 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 reasons for not hard forking wouldn't be. Uh, would be more in a, in the realm of like, hey, we don't want to set a precedent because if you set a precedent, then maybe people become less careful when they create smart contracts because they say like, oh well, you know, we can always hard fork, or maybe what you're saying is like the state of the blockchain is on is on the table, and if you put it on the table, then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, if that's on the table, then then, then what else is as opposed to pure technical changes. So it, it possibly opens a Pandora box. There's the idea of, um, of shelling fences. So a shelling fence is like where it's, it's kind of an arbitrary stop point, but you, that you put so that you don't have a slippery slope. Right. And it's not clear for me where the shelling face is. It's like, you know, what, what should you do? So, one shelling fence that I think is interesting is whether or not the tokens change hand. So if you look at something like the uh, parity wallets, uh, like hack or bug, not the hack, but the bug where like all the funds are inaccessible, right? So in this case, funds haven't changed hands. And so if you have a hard fork that says like, hey, you know, in this hard fork, we introduce a contract which has exactly this hash uh, and, and recovers the fund, it's not messy. However, if funds have changed hands, then I think I, I, I would place the uh, I would place the shilling face before. So overall, I, I would lead towards not doing it. But you know, I'm not a uh, uh, I'm not a rabbit in my opinion uh, over this. Mm -hmm. so in like it, uh, like in Fred uh, Eshram's like article, he has like this like uh, he mentioned how Definity is actually like you know even proposes the idea of being able to like retroactively. Uh, change things of the blockchain stage pro for like there's a little like picture like a cartoonish picture of like a sample of what a proposal queue could look like and I noticed one of the things on there said like freeze zero x sub account and and like said like pornography market and like you and like the idea of like you know having the ability to like this is kind of censorship in a way right um, and should like governance have the ability to censor and well, so basically, there's a, there's a there's kind of a couple of kind of relevant points. One of them is like, okay, fundamentally, if everyone who runs nodes coordinates, they can mm -hmm. censor. 
But on the other hand, the question is, okay, what should the governance processes and norms be, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's actually the main way that I will judge a lot of these things is in terms of how they impact um, and play into the governance norms and processes, right? So to me, like, if the governance process is not easy to gain by adversaries mm -hmm. or for an adversary to push through censorship, but it's only something where somehow um, it's something that stakeholders community represents the stakeholders interests mm -hmm. gets through, then somehow that's, that's the best of both worlds where basically changes get through that represent the stakeholder interests, but when they don't, they, they, they don't, they don't, go, they don't get through. Somehow that's like abstract, right? In, in practice, it's going to be a little more complicated because stakeholders will have conflicting interests at different times. Yeah. And you might not ever find optimal choices or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, at the end of the day, the question about where the like shelling fence should be or, or, or you know, to me, it's, should, it, it, like it's a matter of the process as opposed to, um, you know, particular rules of thumb. I, th I think like through, a, through the process, there should be kind of, you know, basically you will follow a process and then it'll set some precedents. And, and, and then you'll, and those generally will be like what people use to learn about how the process works. This is kind of self-reinforcing norms that end up forming. So um, what do you think about the idea of like, uh, so for, for on, on, on Cosmos, we're actually building, we have for our governance, we, have like a very uh, coin holder driven governance model, but we also have a constitution. And, you know, what do you think about the role of constitutions in, um, uh, in like- Well, so, assume, so I'm assuming that by constitution, you mean like, okay, a set of like principles or like some document that's meant to like give legitimacy to governance processes? Yeah, it acts as a, it acts as like, yeah, it's a legitimacy giver. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think depending on the extent to which the community actually identifies with the constitution mm -hmm. can be effective. You know, uh, I also think that uh, it will kind of, if you, if enough people uphold it, then it'll be like a, a, a kind of focal point, yeah. which will like, like I said, like probably create norms and expectations, which if they're good ones can help a lot and impact things in a positive way. But if you get it wrong, can impact things in a negative way. Right. So somehow, um, the, the important thing to note about, about this type of thing is that it, uh, small changes, small differences in the constitution can make big impacts in the future. Mm -hmm. And so like, and so the actual norms that you have, uh, you know, may not seem that significant today, or you may not put much thought into them today, but will have like outsized effects in the future. So is it, so what you're suggesting then is that like, so maybe a, a constitute, like, trying to create these like shelling fences very early on formalized in a constitution may not be the best idea because we don't, we can't like predict the consequences. Yeah, it might be risky, right? It might, it might end up in a situation where you end up having to, you end up disenfranchising a bunch of stakeholders because, you know, this, this norm that was adopted earlier ended up not being uh, suitable for like later situations. Like for example, the no, no hard forks, the only the, the rule in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, the, the no hard for crow in Bitcoin is uh, is weird. I, I'm still trying to understand uh, the uh, the the thing is is like you know you can you can you can package any Bitcoin hard fork inside a soft fork. And Peter Todd has a great article uh, explaining how you do it. Yeah. You know, you just had a special transaction which is a hash of something else that you publish, which contains completely different rules. No, but, but, and so, but, they, but they actually don't. You really can. They don't really, they don't really advocate it if it changes the 
validation too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know, but, but, but the distinction seems a little, I, I don't know. I, 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 I like Segwit, but I, I, I thought that it, it felt a little convoluted you know, as a way to shoehorn it into a, uh, uh, soft work. Yeah, uh, the thing I want to say, it's, it's not just about governance. So there's a security aspect to these things. So in Tezos, uh, you mentioned, you know, Definity wants to retroactively change the state. In, in Tezos, it's also possible, like through the governance procedure, to change balances. You know, you can say like, hey, here's a new protocol upgrade. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you know, the tokens that were in this account are now in this account. Uh, and as much as possible, I would like to make sure to avoid that not just on a uh, not just on a cultural uh, level, but also on a code level. Uh, if it's at all possible to say to prove that your upgrade only affects you know, consensus algorithm and this type of things and doesn't affect balances in the state, that would be tremendously helpful. Uh, and it's difficult because you you know you have you, you could do things like no no I'm, I don't change the balances I just introduce a new type of transaction and when you make this type of transaction, this is a consequence it has. So it's, it's tricky to do, but the, the reason I want to do it isn't so much that I think that changing the state by itself is necessarily like always horrible or that um, the governance decision would be bad, but you give people powers that maybe they don't want to have. Uh, and all of a sudden, maybe now they're uh, open to threats, maybe now they're open to bribery. Because if you're running a node and someone says like, I don't like that my transaction went through, I want you to vote to remove it. I want you, know, I want you to use governance in order to, uh, to do that. Then you create, you, you create a, a system that can potentially be corrupted. And so as much as possible, you, you, you want to remove power around the sensitive things so that the changes are more about algorithms and, uh, and, and maybe like high-level fees and these type of things, but not something as clear-cut as like, I had tokens, now you have tokens. Yeah, so I mean, along that line then, like, so one thing then is that in Tezos, um, you kind of have like sort of one sort of governance proposal where it's like, this is the this is the OCaml code that it defines the next state of the protocol. Um, yeah. One, one thing we're doing in Cosmos is we're creating these like different classes of uh, proposals, where there's one kind of proposal that's called a parameter proposal, and so there are certain things that are like they're in the parameters such that you know if once the governance proposal goes through, like it gets auto updated on all the validator nodes. And then we have what's called a software upgrade proposal, which like, you know, uh, requires like validators to install and users to install new software altogether. And the thing is we can actually use this distinction in a way where like, for example, you know, we don't want to put technically, it wouldn't be like technically difficult to add uh, like uh, token issuance to like validators as a parameter, but we don't want to do that because we don't want that. We don't want to make it too easy to do that. And so, we just don't add it as a parameter. Like if they really want to change the token issuance, they could go to a software upgrade, but like having these different classes creates um, different like levels of like difficulty on like pushing them through. Yeah, no, I agree. And in fact, you know, the, the whole voting procedure in, in, in Tezos is not something that's like agile enough to like change parameters very often. It's just a way to bootstrap into governance. But one of the fir- first proposals that I'd like to make is to take some parameters you just say, okay, we know that this parameter is safe within this range, and now we're going to delegate like changes to these parameters to the small group of people who can make a signature and that can make very nimble uh, governance decision within those like restricted set of, uh, of parameters and within those uh, restricted in- in- intervals. That way, you can have some agile uh, changes that happen here without putting the system at risk. 
So as yeah, as much as possible, I would like to decouple uh, the governance procedure so that you know, a governance event in Tezos is not just everyone votes for a new code, the code gets compiled and get voted. Because that's that's very cumbersome. But it can um, it, it it can be cut up to pieces progressively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, one question I'd like to ask is like. What are like what are the some like useful classifications or adjectives, for example, that we can use to sort of classify uh, governance protocols? Like you know terms like formalized, centralized, coin holder driven. Like what are the what are the maybe axes or adjectives? Like how can we like try to model like classify in order to like get an idea behind different protocols? Mm. Well, um, I have some ideas. So the the main ma- the main kind of question is how are, is, are how many software repositories are there, and how are they governed and synchronized? Mm-hmm. You know, and how are the nodes governed and synchronized? Right. And then and then, and then also, it's, I think it makes sense to ask about the trademark also. I see. And those are kind of like the basic basic things. And then and then and then you you could compare them by like thinking about basically the 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 coin the node operators basically there's kind of two models that are popular right now one of them is like oh you follow uh you know like social media and like uh, whatever to keep up to date with the with the change to the repository mm-hmm. or there's an on-chain governance process that says here's the chain here's here's the proposed change uh in terms of the software um the software changes um that's more of a question of like is it open source software practices? Is there more of like a centralized development team with like a single project manager? Mm-hmm. Uh, like what is basically there, that's more of like a software project management kind of question sometimes. sometimes. But there's also this question about like, oh, how does community input happen? How does it relate to a, maybe a specification? Um, so I don't know how easy it is to represent that on an axis. How would you describe how a community input happens on in Ethereum? Uh, well, there's the Ethereum improvement proposals process where you can post your ideas or ERCs or there's a, there's a bunch of different types of proposals. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, some curation that happens. And um, if you get the right combination of secret, secret sauce, the all devs call will consider the EAP and then it might make its way into the implementation. Is this all <laughs> Not all EAPs actually need to go to the all devs call, only changes to the protocol actually right. do it, right? <coughs> the ERCs are just implemented and used by the community kind of without any kind of uh, yeah. explicit need for uh, um, the it to become part of the schedule for the all devs meeting. Yeah. Um, so for this all devs call, what do you, uh, can you describe a little bit more? Yeah, sure. This? It's like a bi-weekly call every, uh, uh, every second Friday, right? Uh, where the core developers of all the main implementations of Ethereum get together and decide on the short-term release schedule. And they come to pretty pretty much unanimous consensus every time by like procrastinating things that are contentious. Um, the only example when it wasn't the case is uh, the DAO, the DAO hard fork, where there, there wasn't agreement, which is why we had this, which is one of the reasons why they had, the, 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 and they settled on the whole user activated hard fork where you have to set the flag. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, are these all dev calls open? Yeah, they're all they're all they're all recorded and uh, public, and there's also minutes that you so, can. So, but also, read. like, let's say I'm working on a client implementation on my own, right? Oh yeah, and sure. I, so, so if it's synchronized with the consensus, I think that 
like entitles you to basically okay. calls. Um, so uh, Arthur, what do you think about like the dis the dis uh, concept of like the cl uh, reference clients versus uh, no reference client, right? So like Ethereum kind of follows like to an extent that it was formally specified in the yellow paper, and then uh, yeah, you kind of have somewhat of a reference client in Geth, but like you know, Parity does have enough of a market share that like it kind of. Out, but while in Tezos, it's kind of like the idea is that the, the primary OCaml implementation is like the source of truth. Like you can go ahead and make another client if you want, but if it forks off, like that's that's your problem, right? So, what do you think about like what, what was the design decision that went into there and thinking there? Okay, so I'll, the, I'll tell you the ideal situation. The ideal situation is that you have a complete mathematical model, formal model of your algorithm, and then you have an implementation with a certification, so like a formal proof of correctness. And then if you do that, it doesn't even matter if you have a second implementation because it's proven correct. But you know what, maybe there's some bug between the poly or something like that, so you can have multiple implementations and they're all proven correct with respect to these documents. That's the ideal world. So now less ideal, you do this, but instead of having like a completely formal description, you have a somewhat formal description in a, something like a yellow paper. And the difficulty here is that there may be some ambiguities which are left in the paper, uh, and you don't have also a formal process to see if your implementations are exactly correct. Now, you, you, you can build test suits, you can do a lot of things, but there's a risk that they run a, uh, that they diverge in their consensus. And so this happened with Parity and Get, but fortunately, the difference was that one just stopped and the other one continued, right? But if they had both continued on their branches, it could have been, uh, it could have been difficult. Uh, you could end up with some double spans and, uh, and other issues. And if, 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 if you look at like, what's the risk of having a fork in your protocol and having to resolve that versus having a single implementation, which maybe does something that's not the expected behavior, but at least does it consistently. And in the case of, uh, in the case of uh, distributed ledgers, I think it's better to, to try to preserve the consistency of the ledger rather than to try to have these multiple uh, implementations. And then last but not least, you know, the, the way we define a protocol in Tezos is as a piece of OCaml code. So we can have a different implementation of the network shell. So, you know, the entire peer-to-peer -peer layer that like takes transactions. Uh, and, I, and I think we should, and uh, that's something I would like to, um, uh, to work on if there's funding for it. Uh, but the actual uh, protocol itself, the one that says like, okay, I have a block, what's my new state? That's a piece of a camel. Now, fortunately, most of the bugs that you can expect uh, are probably going to be on the outer shells because that's very stateful. You deal with a bunch of peers, you deal with a bunch of transactions, there's a lot of things that can happen, whereas the protocol itself is, uh, can be pretty small and can be well self-contained, uh, is written in a purely functional manner. So it, it, this piece of a camel code ends up pretty close to a formal specification. Um, um, so, okay, I, I, I guess uh, let's, going back a little bit then to the uh, Bitcoin question. So, Vlad, you're, um, what you've kind of uh, hinted to uh, as your like, ideal governance process seems pretty much very similar to what Bitcoin actually already does, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, only imagine with uh, governance norms that weren't so, so toxic. So, 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 <laughs> so uh, what, I guess going off of that, like, what, what do you think like, went wrong with Bitcoin? Well, I think the main thing that went wrong was the... Um, um, no hard forks thing. Okay. The, the kind of no contentious hard forks thing, I think was a kind of big mistake uh, in a number of ways, both because, um, you know, 
it doesn't mean they, it means they can't really go to proof of stake and sharding. Um, <laughs> and also because it means they can't increase block sizes or do all sorts of things that like may become necessary one day. They kind of have, they, they basically break they, they the, the, box size. the religion of it, right? They really believe that Nakamoto consensus is like it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think a lot of people kind of were disenfranchised by that governance process. I remember you did this uh, governance process of Bitcoin being uh, like idolizing academic pedigree. And oh, can you talk a little bit about I that? I mean, I wouldn't call it academic pedigree necessarily, but mm-hmm. t- but technical expertise and time spent working on expert uh, on on Bitcoin at a certain kind of um, level. Uh-huh. I, I say culturally, it stems from like what you believe is necessary to like to be relevant in 10 years. And if you think that's what's necessary to be relevant in 10 years is that you've you know added all these innovations and you know you have very high throughput of transactions and uh, you're doing all these like great things. Then you need to have you need to have like either hard forks or governance procedure. You need, you need, you need to be able to move. Uh, but the other view is that the way you're relevant in ten years is because you've survived. And the idea of like having no hard fork and like consensus and that's it. To its credit, uh, it's a norm that's very very resilient because it's not going to be subject to drift. You know, you don't risk drifting away to something that becomes irrelevant. You're like, you know, we've had this; it's worked so far. Maybe everything just ends up dying because it just goes in random directions, but we just stick with this, and this is how we survive. And I think that's that, that explains the um, that explains the difference in uh, uh, in opinion uh, and culture around the governance. So let's talk about trademarks a little bit, then I guess. Sure. So things like Bitcoin, where like the name isn't uh, defined, like who is like what is the definition of Bitcoin? Is it by definition the chain that has the genesis block and has the most hash power? Can if Bitcoin Cash it, uh, in six months has more ha- uh, proof of collective cumulative proof of work, does it become Bitcoin? And how does this idea compare to like you know the trademark policy of like uh, something someone like Zcash, where the Zcash company or foundation, I'm, I don't remember which one, but one of the two actually owns the name Zcash. I'll just point out that at some point Ethereum had more hash power than Bitcoin, and so Ethereum is a real bit was for a short period of time a real Bitcoin, according to the definition of like hash. You know, there's Bitcoin maximalism and then there's like hash power maximalism. Uh, but it didn't have the genesis block. Pushing it very far. No, it didn't have the right genesis block. But but so the, if you yeah. talk, if you talk to certain maximalists, you're, you don't you don't even need the genesis block because you just check mm-hmm. all the you just check any proof work chains. <laughs> but but anyways. Uh, Somehow, the if there is if the trademark isn't legally owned and can't be legally enforced by some entity that you know kind of owns it uh, and can you know use the trademark system, then it's going to be enforced by a um, kind of coordination around the symbol via like norms in a distributed kind of fashion. Where basically people will kind of have to argue it out when things get contentious, but for the most part, there's just going to be something that sticks because people there's a coordination cost reduction if everyone agrees on what to call things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like what will end up happening is, um, you know, people with important interfaces that like list, you know, like mm-hmm. the coins, like maybe exchanges, block explorers, <coughs> you know, bitcoin.com, like these types of things <laughs> will decide indiv- individually what their processes are for, for, for doing it. And, and, but also they're going to be doing it in a way that kind of, at least in theory, like should, represent their own, it should represent their own stakeholders. And what ends up happening is that the, their users will end up complaining, right? There was like a lot of complaints against Coinbase, I think, for uh, supporting some of these uh, 
non-core Bitcoin bitcoins. Um, yeah. So actually, one thing that I think would be cool to end on, and I think it'd be cool for you guys to have like one minute to have the floor to to speak to the conspiratist viewers um, with your your you know. What's your last minute pitch on, on blockchain governance? What are your thoughts? What do you want to leave the, the viewers with? Um. Today, uh, every modern software has auto-update. Uh, your browser, your OS has auto-update. And the way it works is that the vendor is going to send you a new version and you're going to sign it and you install it. And that's a, a very common feature. Uh, if you want to do that with a decentralized system, you cannot, you cannot have a single party sign it. And so you need to have some sort of collective signature that comes from everyone using the system. And that is essentially a governance procedure. So the idea is to say, let's use um, the collective power of the users of the blockchain and the token holders in order to decide how we want to evolve. And that's a way where uh, to bring in innovation uh, while having the least disruption as possible to the blockchain. Thanks. So I would say that like generally um, blockchain governance processes are about managing the resources of the blockchain, basically the software that runs on the various nodes. Um, and I think that like the kind of most important thing to kind of realize that uh, the, the, it's a coordination problem between like many participants that affects many stakeholders and um, coordination games are structured by okay, the fundamental kind of nature of the things that you're coordinating around and the decisions around them, uh, and also about the norms and uh, the norms and processes that everyone uses to coordinate. Uh, and those, those kind of norms, uh, like governance norms, are having very large impacts on the outcome of governance processes, even if they have the same, the same kind of structure. Uh, so I think that like the kind of most important at the end of the day thing for the legitimacy and effectiveness of blockchain governance is for uh, the processes to be, um, you know, kind of fair and representative and for the norms to be uh, kind of healthy, whatever, whatever that means. Cool. Cool. Awesome, guys. Thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate you guys taking the time. Love to have you guys on, uh, maybe uh, in the future again, and like maybe sounds good. Let's have it. We should let's do it. Um, Tezo after Tezos's first uh, governance proposal. Oh, that'd be very let's do it. I, 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 I have yeah, my first governance proposal for Tezos uh, to switch yeah. to consensus. <laughs> <laughs>
I actually agree with Vlad on his like claim that like use most users just care about being with their peers. And to me, the logical way of like having people stay with their peers, especially where people who aren't that like, you know, uh, active in the process is like just have them automatically upgrade and only the people who are actively against like the upgrade can go ahead and hard fork. But I know, I, I know that you kind of disagree on that as well. Yeah. So, um, so I guess I'd make two points. The first one is that I think anyone who really is that apathetic probably isn't going to be running a node. You know, it's not trivial to run a node. And I think anyone who's, mm -hmm. you know, so apathetic that they can't bother themselves to download new software, even though everyone else is doing it, is probably a very select small class of user. And so I'm not really so worried about that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in general, this kind of argument of, you know, oh, we'll get efficiency gains if we kind of just put everyone together by default, um, kind of as Vlad made a really good point, I thought, um, that I'd never really thought of before. And that the, the bottleneck in governance isn't really at the downloading the software part, right? It's, yeah. it's everything else around that, kind of coming to the agreement um, um, and, and, and even more than that, implementing the changes, right? That's usually kind of the main issue um, in the case of even, you know, just regular protocol upgrades. I think that's where the bottleneck is. And so I think in most cases, we're not going to solve that problem. We're not going to fix that bottleneck. More so what we're going to do is, uh, you know, disenfranchise all of the node operators, which, you know, maybe we disagree about how important they are, but I kind of think that they are engaged and they are important just because they're the ones running the software. Yeah, and it seems that, like, one of Arthur's uh, main things, like, you know, he talked a lot about this idea of, like, this, uh, finding using shelling points to figure out which way governance is going to go. And one of his key, like, efficiency games that, that he was trying to go for is, like, eliminate a lot of the uh, stakeholders from the governance process but by making the assumption that uh, the coin holders actually share the incentives and have the best interests of all the other stakeholders in mind. And like, you know, I guess this is like, I'm not quite certain yet, like how true this uh, model is. Like, I, I, in my opinion, I think that in every blockchain and cryptocurrency that we've seen up till now, I think that generally tends to be true, but like, you know, the use cases of blockchain as they shift away from like currency and money, maybe that uh, assumption will change over time. At least that's how I see it. Yeah, I think so. I think he might make the distinction that, um, you know, it's not that he's eliminating stakeholders from the, uh, you know, governance process is that he's, they're, they're implicitly included through the, the coin holders thing. Yeah, but yeah, but I, I think I also agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I think I totally agree with you um, in that, uh, uh, you know, it might be semi true as of now, but I think if we really do achieve our goal of, you know, these general purpose, you know, maybe not everyone agrees this is our goal, but kind of these um, generally used blockchains that kind of have actual users on them and not just people who, uh, you know, hold cryptocurrency and just kind of chill out. Um, mm -hmm. I think we might kind of see a divergence where you know users want one things and coin holders want another and in that case you know coin holder based governance doesn't represent who we want to represent yeah i guess this is a matter of like seeing how what how the industry starts laying out because especially if you have like more application specific blockchains it maybe goes a different way um so what do you think about the whole idea that like arthur's claims about it being very easy for users to switch between blockchains and like how strong do you think like this competition between different competing blockchains is yeah, um, that's a great question. I, um, you know, here's what I'll say to all our listeners. Um, if you hold cryptocurrency, 
Um, how well could you imagine, you know, selling all your all of one of your cryptocurrencies and switching over to another one, right? It's just kind of, it seems very tribalistic as of now. And it seems like people, there, there's some amount of lock-in to me. Uh, and I, I'm not sure, at least as of now, I buy this, you know, competition between blockchains. If governance kind of sucks, you'll switch elsewhere thing. Um, the, the other thing I want to point out, though, is that, you know, this point, much like our last one, could be something that evolves over time. And it could be that, you know, as our blockchains get more mature, it's kind of much easier to kind of migrate from, from blockchain to blockchain. Um, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think there was a lot of interesting stuff in the podcast. Although, I mean, you know, one of the things I was kind of actually a little bit disappointed about was we actually had a lot of other interesting stuff in our reading that we didn't really, like, get a chance to, like, cover in the uh, – like podcasts. I think one of the big ones that we actually didn't get a chance to get to was like talking about voter participation rates. Cause like, you know, in a lot of the things we, you, if you ever read about like the Dow hard fork, one of the biggest like critiques or uh, like, you know, big questions about like, you know, how such a small percentage of ether was actually participated in the uh, carbon vote. Um, what do you, I just want to get your thoughts and like, what do you think about this kind of stuff? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think there's a lot of area to explore in terms of like the, the, the voter participation rates. Arthur made some point in some talk he gave a while ago about, you know, automatic delegation and, you know, oh, and I think this is something Tendermint might have also where you kind of, you know, can, can say, oh, I'll vote with this person um, mm -hmm. or Cosmos, sorry. Um, yeah, we have like a sort of like liquid democracy thing kind of going. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting model. Um you know, it, it kind of says, oh, you know, more percent of the coins voting. And I would kind of also make the argument that it also definitely doesn't make, you know, doesn't allow for any more input, right? So it's like, you know, you can say, oh, we have higher voter participation because, you know, a million people vote. But if a million people are all just a single person pressing one button, the question mm -hmm. kind of remains how much real voter participation did you get? Um, so, you know, it's an interesting model. It's unclear to me how well it, it really represents uh, the interests of the people who are voting. But, you know, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if like all the readers got a chance to get to it. It was like the last thing on our reading list kind of tucked away, but like, you know, maybe if we like, we didn't get a chance to consider and talk about like non coin holder voting, uh, based governance models, like, uh, you know, Futarchy. So to some degree, I think Futarchy is still kind of a coin holder based, you know, governance voting model. Um, mm -hmm. it's just maybe a bit more complex. I think the distinction probably between Futarchy and, the governance systems we see as of now is that, you know, here's like a futarchy is like, okay, let's create a prediction market for an outcome. Let's find some way of resolving that prediction market, uh, you know, to see if something was good or bad. And then, you know, implement policies based on that. To some degree, you can kind of think about um, coin holder based governance as a very limited form of, of futarchies in the sense that they kind of just say, you know, we're assuming that, you know, whether something is good or bad is tied up in the price of a token. And that's kind of what is resolving the market in the first place, right? So to some degree, I think that um, current coin holder based governance strategies are all pretty much just like very limited futarchies. Um, yeah. uh, and it might be interesting to kind of, you know, there are, there are, there are, there are, issues that people bring up with them. And I think that's definitely valid. And I think to some degree, maybe they're a bit better, but still fall prey to many of the issues that, you know, Vlad kind of talks about when he talks about on-chain governance. Yeah, you actually, that actually reminds me that you made it, we were talking the other day and you made this point about how like uh, curation markets are actually this like sort of limited form of futarchies. And like, so it seems like you're actually making a similar claim about like 
uh, coin holder governance is basically a futarchy yeah. without like a well-defined uh, measurement mechanism. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I, mean I, yeah. I would love to, we're probably going to, I'm sure we'll end up doing an episode on futarchy in the future. Uh, so let's save that for, for next time. Cool. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll jump into it then. Um, all in all, I think this was a, a great first podcast. Obviously, you know, I think I speak for both of us when I say, you know, thank you listeners. Uh, obviously, we're still learning and kind of, you know, getting our, our podcast chops. And we really appreciate you guys tuning in. And obviously, in the future, we're really looking forward to kind of improving, you know, the questions we ask, the discussions we have, and obviously the production quality. Um, so, you know, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, and, and we hope you guys, uh, you know, got something out of it. And yeah, uh, and a bit of a teaser for next time. Uh, our next episode is going to be on stable coins. And so stay tuned for that. And we'll be releasing a, the reading list for that within the next uh, two weeks. So uh, keep your eyes open. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. So uh, stay, stay, uh, stay frosty. <laughs>